Hello, and welcome to the Days of Learning podcast. I am your host, David Nelson, and I am very overjoyed to have both a colleague and friend joining us today. Now, we're going to be doing some double dipping, and I normally don't do double dipping, but in this instance, we're going to be doing this podcast for the Days of Learning podcast. And for those of you who are regulars, you know what that's about. It's about community engagement and clinical care and all things that are to do with health and wellness. But I'm also part of a project called SWIFT. And that is supporting wellness for teachers and teens. And so we're doing this podcast not only for the days of learning, but for the SWIFT podcast called Teacher Talk. And today we're joined by Dr. Brian Culp of Kennesaw State University in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you, Dr. Culp, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here, David. And I'm, um, obviously, this is a, a wonderful opportunity not just to talk to some of your listeners for the podcast, but also talk about sort of some of the things that we do in SWIFT. So excited to be here. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Brian Culp. Brian Culp is a professor at Kennesaw State University who has published on topics related to youth, physical activity, and climate, teacher education, anti-racism, spatial justice, and leadership in higher education. In addition to creating and facilitating opportunities for research and civic engagement, he has helped design funded movement-based community intergenerational programs. A recipient of numerous awards for distinguished contributions to the field of kinesiology, Dr. Culp is a fellow of the National Association of Kinesiology in Higher Education and has been a Fulbright Scholar in Montreal, Canada. Among his collaborations are organizations such as Shape America, Physical Education, Health Education Canada, Sport for Life Society, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Board for Professional Training Standards, and the National Center for civil and human rights. Brian's most recent projects consider the viability of public pedagogy for racial justice based on concepts presented in the recent book, Critical Race Studies in Physical Education, co-authored with Tara Blackshear. Dr. Culp has been held teaching licenses in Georgia and Indiana. That is quite a lot of background, Dr. Culp. Uh, Brian, I, I just want to get into it because there's so much that we can talk about and so many parallels to the work that you're doing in SWIFT and to the work that I do in medical education around teaching medical students about community engagement. And so we'll probably touch a little bit on both those, but I want to start with your background. Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from and how you got to do the work that you're doing. Well, that this is great. And for those of you who are, are at a different point in your career, you'll probably appreciate this, this arc. I'm going to give you the, the mid-tier version I typically give everybody else. So I grew up in a town called Decatur, Georgia, which is outside of Atlanta, Georgia, um, 76. Um, so I'm a bicentennial baby and not to, not to go too much into that, but just to kind of give you an idea of kind of like, you know, how old I am and kind of where I am. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Decatur in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, Grew up in what we probably call right now a lower middle, middle class neighborhood. Um, if you talk to my parents, they would probably tell you it was a little bit, um, a little bit less than that in terms of things. So, um, had a pretty good elementary school. Ended up going to high school at Tucker High School. Ended up going to the University of Georgia. And I think in terms of how I got into physical education. I remind people a lot of times, like I was not a what will can be considered a higher, a high skilled mover performer. I actually did not get good at that until probably my sophomore year of college. Um, when we talk about being proficient, 
And I think long story short, what I, I started to realize, I went to the University of Georgia as a landscape architecture major. I ended up switching into health and physical education because more of those different types of experience sort of spoke to me in terms of being in front of people, teaching, leading youth. Um, I finished there at the University of Georgia in 1999, ended up teaching for a couple years in the state of Georgia. I was doing a master's at Georgia State at the same time with, um, at sport, with sport administration at Georgia State. And um, long story short, when it came to that, you know, I had the opportunity to go to work with the United States Golf Association, um, and then 9-11 happened, um, for those who sort of remember that. So I sort of pivoted and decided to sort of hang around Atlanta because I wanted to be close because at that particular time, we just didn't know what was going to be happening in our society. Um, ended up talking to a former mentor at the University of Georgia, and she said, hey, why don't you think about coming back and working on a doctorate? And I, I laughed at her. I was like, a doctorate in physical education? And she said, no, silly, it's a doctorate in curriculum and instruction. And you would come back here and, and do some work related to that. So um, ended up doing three years of that and uh, essentially moved from Savannah, Georgia. That was my first job to Indianapolis, Indiana, which I worked at IUPUI, a branch of Indiana University. Um, after about eight years there, decided to do a Fulbright. And again, none of these things were planned. They just things that are happened. So I went to Montreal, Canada for a year, which was very fun. Knew nothing about Canada at that particular point. Um, met some really great contacts there. Ended up... Um, this job at Kennesaw State University came up in 2015, and I have been here now for eight years. It'll be eight years in July. So yeah, that's that's kind of the the short background. I love I love those stories about people's trajectory and the listeners who will uh, appreciate this. <clears throat> you know, it's never uh, from left to right, if you will, in a linear fashion. It often is circuitous and up and down, if you will, hills and valleys in the spaces that we're in. But I sometimes think about those spaces that we've been in and allows us to see um, what else is out there. And you you started in one major. Uh, you ended up as a movement major, if you will. Uh, and frankly, you, you didn't see yourself as skilled. And so many people that go into health, physical education, wellness, recreation are skilled in that to begin with. And I think that sometimes that doesn't translate as well because you know, they have forgotten the things that what it's like to be a beginner, what it's like to be a novice. And for many of us who who have grown in the space of our our skills, it's like, yeah, it takes us a while to get there. And, and you sound like that that was for you. And you're able to see different parts of the country and different parts of the world, for that matter, uh, from a Fulbright perspective. How has those different experiences shaped your thinking about what you're doing now? That's a great question. I, I would probably say when I went to Montreal, I, I was in my mid-30s, and I had had one way of looking at the world to that point. It was through the lens of United States culture. Um, and let me back up a little bit here because I had spent some time doing a few study abroads in, in uh, excuse me, Kenya, East Africa. But going to Canada and being in Montreal's bilingual, so it's French and English speaking and living in the French part of town and living there for a long period of time because it just was me, um, pretty much gave me a view of the insider outsider perspective. And I was an outsider coming into an inside position and I wasn't trying to necessarily put my particular lens on it, but I had to spend a lot of time listening and a lot of time learning and a lot of time trying to navigate which cities. And I think it's been very helpful for me in, in order to think about that uh, and thinking about culture 
um, and respecting people's culture, um, not knowing, not thinking that I need to be right all the time, the importance of listening. And I think what it's what has helped me do is translate that to some of the current work that I'm doing in communities, some of the study abroad work that I do. I've been doing study abroad for 12 years. I just came back from a trip in the Dominican Republic literally last week where we take students and sort of challenge their assumptions and put them in situations where they're not necessarily comfortable. Um, and I think that and the fact that I did not grow up as what would be considered a high-skilled athlete, it gives me a different lens by which to look at things. I, I love the story. And uh, I'm going to tell a little tale here. When you and I had a conversation about you going to Montreal, about your orientation, and we're, we're, we're so used in America to say your orientation will be this, that, and the other, and that you'll do these things and you'll meet with these people. When you got to Montreal, what'd they do to you? The, the first thing that happened to me, and I'm not joking, so I drove my 2003 CRV up there. I remember it being because I wanted to have that car. So I drove it up there, and I went to go get gas for the first time. So I drove it from Indianapolis through Detroit to halfway through Canada to Montreal because, you know, I wanted to have my car up there. And the first time I was in a gas station in Montreal, Canada, I accidentally ordered a dog, like no joke. And the person looked at me because he was bilingual and he said, sir, you understand, you must not be from here. You, you ordered a dog and uh, not gas. So let me help you out here. And he was nice about it because I had a few different situations in Montreal where people were not necessarily as nice with the English to uh, French translation. Um, but yeah, that, that was a big thing. And um, another quick story, I had one of my good friends, Catherine Baker, and if she's, she's listening to this, I'm probably going to tell her this, this podcast. Um, so I met her up there and we're, we're still friends now. She still lives in Montreal. She works in physical education, but um, learning how to ride the Metro was an experience um, because of the subway system. There's so many different places to go. And after about two or three stops, the first time she taught me how to, lead, to, to ride the Metro, she actually just left me. And she says, okay, so I'm going home now. You're going to need to figure out how to learn how to ride this thing, which, which at the time it was like shocking. I was like, man, I just met you. Uh, literally like a couple of weeks ago and now like this is where you leave me off and she's like well the only way you're going to learn this is actually riding and it was a great experience so I spent a spent about a day and a half just kind of riding everywhere um, after she had left me that initial night I, I did get back home just for some of y'all who think about that so I was able to get back home then I got back on the metro the next day and rode around essentially the whole day and um, kind of figured out some ways to use it so yeah I, I love those stories and I love the story of they said, here's your desk and good luck. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, it was it was a great time. I mean, I, I had a lot of support, but I had a lot of autonomy. And and I think with a person like me who's a natural explorer, um, that was great because you you things that if you follow me around with a camera, I would never show you some of the videos. But I have the experience. So I sometimes have an appreciation for what people are going into when they are in a world that they may not necessarily know. For well, I like that. I like both those stories about the Metro as well as the, the idea of the autonomy because we, we in community engagement, we talk about this idea of self-determination and, and as Americans, we're often very directive in our, in our determination. And, and I wanna pivot that to some of your expertise and some of the things that you think about <clears throat> Because, you know, this idea of education and student education, I'd like you to tell me what comes to mind. And here's where I'm thinking about this. Because we live in cultural times, we can't help but think of the ideology that's going on and the idea of the 
the polarity that's going on around education. But when you think about student education, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, so I started doing a lot of work and I started doing looking at space probably about the time I came back from Montreal and space in terms of how people interact. And I think um, I took some of those lessons, I started applying them to study abroad. And what I started finding out is that when I look at student education, there are a lot of the same principles that I use in a study abroad-ish course. For instance, first of all, setting students up, like I think student education is all about, first of all, having a supportive environment. Um, so an environment where the instructor gives some general rules for engagement, but it's not at the expense of making the student feel like they, they can't participate. Um, I don't think students need to be necessarily coddled. I do think that we have to put students in situations where they take risk. And again, as I mentioned before, exploring. So I think that's my first one. I got, I think I have like two or three more. Um, the second one is active real world environment settings. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. Um, I think that's why the study abroad appeal is, is, is huge for me because it's one thing for me to talk about, for instance, hey, this particular group in the Dominican Republic doesn't have a toilet. But it's another thing for students to go there and actually see it and say, well, what can we do to kind of assist with this challenge? And you tell them, well, it takes 600 bucks in order to get a bathroom for this particular person or group of people in a particular village. And then you see students strategizing over the next few days, building it, raising money for it through GoFundMe in the span of like 24 hours. And that's something where they say to themselves, you know what, in this particular country, just me thinking about doing this is able for me to galvanize groups. Um, involving other people. I think that's, that's a big thing in terms of student learning. I, I think we spend so much time in silos. I think there's a lot of value with talking to other people and getting them sort of involved in things because I think we have the tendency in our societies and I would probably say in a lot of Western world societies to do group things. I think we, we just say, okay, here's the most popular opinion. It sounds good. This person is great. He talks good or she talks great enough. And then it turns into a cult of personality and we have a problem. And then I think at the end of the day, and, I, and again, I, there's probably a lot more I can think about, but I reflection, because I think all of those things are fine, but it's not just a reflection after you do the activity. It's sometimes a reflection two years later. Sometimes it's a reflection five years later. Sometimes it's a reflection 30 years later. Sometimes it's a reflection as you see the model, if you're in a situation where now you're leading people and you're reflecting on here are the things that I saw, but again, at the same time, not creating a situation for students to where it says, here was my experience, here's the only way it has to be. Really good examples and, and, and much to be crossed over with the way that we engage with and the way that we facilitate uh, students in their learning. I want to have you go a little bit deeper around this idea of taking risk. And uh, frankly, it seems like so much of what we do in education, uh, frankly, we seem risk aversive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would completely agree with you. I, I think I'm a big believer in calculating this, right? So, and can, having calculated risk gets to something I may talk a little about later about like gaining as much information that you possibly can without the same time being frozen by the information that you gather. 
And I think that we are in a situations with many of us, many some people that I work with in education and even people who make policy decisions, they get so much data that they actually get frozen to the point that they don't take risk. So it's for me, it's, it's like trying to find that balance of, yeah, we wanna take calculated risk. We wanna get some data, we wanna get some information. We wanna know what our assets are. We wanna know our potential weaknesses, but at the same time, we don't wanna know too much because if we know too much, then the innovation stops. People, as you said, get afraid. We do groupthink, we do the things that are safe instead of providing environments where a couple different options can come out of it in any type of um, brainstorming, thinking, communication, or, or group piece. Well, it, it goes back to the idea of reflection that you said and, and, and being reflexive. And in other words, this idea of not only thinking about, but thinking of where you can improve and what you might need to improve. And, and so I want to go on a, a slightly different tangent to that. But what is some things that failure has taught you? Oh, my goodness gracious. We don't have enough time for that. So I'll, I'll think of a, a couple of different things. I think failure has taught me how to work with other people who have gone through failure. I would probably say that's the biggest piece. I think that some, you know, in my way I look at the world, I think we're put on earth to experience certain things and so that we can help others do that. Um, so for me, being in situations where I, I honestly didn't think I was ever going to be doing the work that I'm doing right now. I mean, if you would have told me at 20 years old what I'd be doing right now, I probably would have thought that you'd had something wrong with you. So I think for me, failure has has just been it's been one of the lessons that you learn in order to help somebody else look at the world in a completely different way. Um, and there's just so many different examples. I, I, I mean, I just me thinking about college exams, for instance, like some students are great students. I had a scholarship in college and basically because I just wasn't focused enough and I sort of took studies for granted, I got off that scholarship and I had to really work hard um, as a resident assistant and do some other things throughout college. And, and people ask me, well, you know, would you have rather not had that experience? And I say to myself, no, I would have, I'm, I would never change anything about that experience because that experience got me to be more of a talker to now, you know, I went from an introvert to now being an extrovert. And sometimes I can't, can't be quiet, right? In some scenarios, but it also gave me an appreciation for looking at different scenarios and being able to critically think. Um, so yeah, I, I think failure for me has has been a great thing. I mean, we, and even when we do little things like write papers, right? Um, failure in terms of like that first lecture that you were really prepared for and then something happens in the classroom and it just completely just goes out of the wall. Failure as a teacher, when you go into that classroom, when you've got something really prepared, and I was an elementary teacher for a while, and then, you know, just youth happened. And all of that stuff is thrown out because now you go from being like this person who's focused on the lesson plan to now you're having to be a more emotional person for that particular class in order to meet the uh, social emotional learners of students. Yeah, I was thinking about the word boundaries when you talked about that risk. And that was my note to myself that we want to give students the boundaries. Mm -hmm. No, you shouldn't jump off the three-story building. No, you shouldn't jump off the boat in the middle of the ocean. That's I don't care if your friends dare you to do that. That could get you killed. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, if you have these variances, these boundaries with which to say, hey, don't give the keys away, don't get anybody killed, but anything else you can do in that, take some risks and, and you know, let's see how bad you can screw things up, right? <clears throat> but then the idea then, and to give the space, because I, I believe in the idea of action, leaning into something, and then to reflect upon it, to lean back on it. Do you think students with their parents are risk aversive because they're fear of uh, their failure aversive and parents don't want their children to feel bad. Yeah, I agree. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, I think it sometimes can be generational too. I think parents can sometimes be in a situation where they say to themselves, you know, I failed at something. So therefore I don't want you to have it. I'll give you a perfect example of this. So when we talk about athletic experiences, my dad was a football player in high school. He did not like it. He was playing it just to play it. And he, he is open about that. He's always not liked it. Um, when I decided I wanted to run cross country in 11th grade, he told me I had lost my mind. Now, again, my dad's a great person, but he was looking at it. And he, we talked about this a few years ago. He was looking at it from the standpoint, it's like, son, I don't want you to get hurt. Like, I just don't want you to go through the same feelings I went through because nothing in your history before told me that you were going to be a cross country runner, right? But to my credit, I ended up lettering in high school um, after essentially like one year, which he thought was a big deal. And then he sort of just was like, okay, you're, you're choosing your own path. Now you're going to do what you need to do. So yeah, I think parents are overprotected. And I think, I mean, depending on how you look at society, there are a lot of things in society that, yeah, will make you want to be overprotective for children. I, I would probably say that. I don't think they start out that way, but programming is a big piece of this. So if you're programmed to think that you have to take care of your kids, you can't give risks, don't put them outside, um, band-aids. I mean, we have to track students out. If that's the mentality that's happening, and some of this is transmitted through society, transmitted through schools, transmitted through protection agencies, then yeah, you're probably gonna say to, you, to your child, don't take a risk because I want you to be like everybody else because I want you to be safe. Yeah, and then you run into the idea of being fearful in that space. And I can think of so many instances when um, I've either been let go from a job um, or I've been fired from a project, which has happened on both instances. And um, it has made me reflect upon one, my behaviors when I things have gotten, you know, when things have been under my control. <clears throat> and frankly, to, to go a little bit, be a little bit more graceful with myself when things were out of my control, right? And so it's, it's kind of a, a combination. And I'm encouraging my students that I work with at the graduate level to spend time thinking and reflecting about what it means to be who they are and what they believe in. And, and so with that in mind, Brian, I want to ask you about a similar question that we meandered a bit here. You know, how do we get the next generation of teachers to think like this about encouraging their students to take risks, to talk and listen, and to be reflective about their practice of teaching as it relates to the students that they're engaging with? Yeah, well, you know, one of the, I think the biggest things that we see right now um, and depending on, again, your view of the world, I think cultural competency has always been important, but I think even more so now, I think new teachers coming into the space um, really need to be a little bit more understanding of all the dynamics of culture, as many as they possibly can, because we're thinking about it in terms of not just from a political standpoint, 
but these are economic decisions that get made based on culture. These are perceptual decisions. These are health decisions. Um, and when we say health, it could be life or death. Not understanding somebody's culture could actually turn off somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of power. So as a teacher, you're in a situation where you're turning somebody off to an opportunity because of your perception of that particular person's culture. Um, I think there's some students we recognize have psychological needs, they have psychosocial needs. And again, this is not to say that teachers can do all of this, but I think these are some of the things they need to understand. I think teachers have to have an incredible amount of empathy now. Um, I don't, I don't always see that or what I well, let me rephrase that what I see is that the teachers typically have empathy, sometimes administrators don't, and administrators may not for a lot of different reasons, um, because you, you find some bad ones who are just bottom line individuals. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I think being able to read data is a very important thing, but not just to read it, but to be able to use it accurately and not be paused by some things that you might not necessarily see. And to recognize um, when are appropriate uses of data. Um, how old should we, how long should we hold on to data, for instance? Um, what's the example of like a population size where we would actually take um, something seriously? For instance, every few years we see something that says chocolate is bad versus chocolate is good. And then, you know, I mean, you talk to people at Valentine's Day, you're going to get a couple different things as well. Um, and then I think strategies, how to advocate for their students, how to advocate for the programs, how to advocate for themselves. Um, how are we creating things and opportunities so students can have voices in these communities? Because I think one thing that we don't do enough of, um, we talk about the, the fact that we like youth, but how many opportunities do we actually give youth to express themselves? And then what happens is, is when they take the risk to express themselves in a medium that many of us may not understand, whether that's art, whether that's music, whether that's gaming, then we say, well, something's wrong. We have to restrict it, right? Like social media, like something on TikTok, well, we have to restrain that. And I think a lot of times our youth are trying to express something, but we don't necessarily understand it because we're saying that what they're doing is, is too risky. You know, it makes me think of more of the idea of, of the political times that we're in and how we, you know, we are fearful of what students may be exposed to in, in that environment. And, and frankly, we want students to be able to ask questions in this space and to be able to advocate for themselves and you to be standing beside them in, in that advocacy. And we talk about that in community engagement. And I was thinking as you were speaking, Brian, was that idea of you want to be able to relate to your students, mm -hmm. it, to to not necessarily understand because that's a that's a pretty soft word, but to identify with the both the assets that exist with the students as well as the challenges. For example, um, <clears throat> I will never know what it's like to be a person of color, yeah. yet I spend enough time with people of color to know some of the challenges because they have let me into the space. And it re it makes me realize that because of the experiences that I've had, they are different than people of color. And it allows us to, to both empathize with them and to be an advocate together, especially when I have power and privilege. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I'm always asking myself, and I did it just on this past um, trip with my students with the DR, like I asked them, I was like, 
you have to help me with the circumstances or the situations or the parameters of what helps me get the best out of you and vice versa. So how can I communicate better here, right? Like, what can we do? Is it something that I can do better to get the best out of you and vice versa? Because I think a lot of times we come in and say, here's a physical journal, write in it. And it might not be a physical journal. It could be something electronic on a group chat that might actually be, which is what we did this past year, which was hugely successful because people were able to kind of communicate in real time instead of just, you know, hey, I'll turn it in something in for you tomorrow or I'll think about it for a while. And then we were able to add some different things like music and songs and some other activities and quizzes and just things that were just seemingly informal, but we got a lot of things out of it. So that's one thing I always ask myself about. And, and to your point, I'm always personally challenging myself. I mean, you know, people say that I'm an expert on whatever. And I usually tell, tell them I'm not an expert. I'm a lifelong learner. There's a complete difference because if I was an expert on this, I would, you know, be probably exalted on some different planet somewhere. But I'm still, I mean, some of the things that we've talked about, for instance, of past few years, I mean, transgender students, that was an area that I did not have like a lot of information on. And that's an area where I'm still growing. Um, how we're having conversations with what people say are today's students, right? I mean, these are areas where you you just continue to sort of grow. So I, I think um, I think that's a very important thing. And that's something I try to do like in my pedagogy. Yeah, my, my saying is I kind of run from people who are experts because they have it all figured out. And we, we like to tell, you know, we fit, we've learned a thing or two, but we're still figuring it out because anytime you think you've got it figured out, you'll get you'll get the harsh reality thrown in your face about, mm -hmm. man, you really don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about a tough subject now. Yeah. And we know in many of our metropolitan areas that there are inequities based upon the conditions with which students live. What have you seen in these spaces, whether it be around housing or community connections or economic status or access to health care, how has that impacted student learning? So great question. And, and in some cases, sobering questions. And I always think about when, when I thought about like that a few seconds ago when you posed it, um, I was exposed to Jonathan Kozel in a book named Savage Inequalities. This was in my uh, doctoral pedagogy. And it was and I, I already knew about inequalities, right? I had just a passing glance, but really reading that book and him talking about school systems and talking about how things are broken down, that's when I really started like really getting into some lenses with some things. So generally, here's what I have seen. I've seen, first of all, just a commitment to not allocating resources to school systems. Now, sometimes that can be because we want to force people out in the case of gentrification, again, depending on what you think gentrification actually is. Some people, for instance, will say, you know what, we'll, we'll sort of um, not give resources to a, uh, a neighborhood, community, school district, run basically the current people out of there, and then we will actually bring resources in once those current people have kind of scattered away, or in some cases, unfortunately, been priced out of the area. So that's one thing that I'm seeing in communities. I think the other thing that I see is high teacher turnover. And I think that's a lot because teaching is a difficult task. I think we know that. I think you will see teachers who are compensated differently in, in high resource school districts. 
and all of them are trying to get there. Well, I say not all, but many of them are trying to get there. Many more of them actually want to stay and work in these, what we consider low resource uh, metropolitan schools, but they just don't have the support. Um, and sometimes we say, take for instance, um, parents and guardians, that's another piece, like how active are they? So we have people who will say, well, your parents need to be more active in the schools. Your guardians need to be more active. And we say to ourselves, well, some of these parents are working and they're working multiple jobs just to put food on the table, which is a very challenging thing for student success because that changes how students interact with their parents and when they have time to do those different things. Um, a few other things, transportation is one that we see. Um, big piece to this. I mean, there's a difference between having your, your mom, dad, parental guardian drop you off at school versus riding a school bus versus walking to school in some neighborhoods that might not be safe. Urban blight, and many people, they get surprised when I talk about that and I say, well, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, why do you drive to one neighborhood and hang out in it versus you drive to another neighborhood and you're saying to yourself, avoid that neighborhood or drive past it. And you generally see when we talk about urban blight, cracked sidewalks, cracked like um, places for recreation, dirt fields, um, no nets on the uh, basketball court, those types of things, right? Those are not necessarily attractive, which goes into probably some things related to gentrification. Um, big class sizes is one thing I, I typically see in schools and it drives me up the wall because we say to ourselves, well, we, everybody says, well, if you have smaller class sizes, your teachers are going to know you. you're going to have one one to one learning. It's going to aid with student success. But we continue in these metropolitan schools to decide that we're going to have 60 to 50, 65 students in the case of physical education class. And then I think two more things um, just so I can think of off the top of my head. I think language barriers. Um, I think that's a very understated piece. And when we mean language, there's a couple of different things. I mean, obviously we have people coming from other countries who speak English as a second language. So that's the first barrier. But the other piece is the language that cultural groups speak in themselves that is sometimes misappropriated, sometimes seen as this person is speaking in slang or they're not speaking the correct vernacular, so therefore they don't know anything. And uh, last is, you know, the same narratives. I mean, what do we think of when we think of, of an urban school or a metropolitan difference? We have to provide, I think, counter narratives because we sometimes assume that just because the school's in an urban area, that is a, a not supported school. And we find that actually there are a fair number of schools that do have supportive systems. And it's, it's a, some technique to it. It's not rocket science. And there's a lot of support that has to happen. That gave us a lot to unpack. And if we if we look at it as a whole, I think we can definitively say that if we're lacking in one of the or more social determinants, that that will have a direct impact on the education of students and their ability to succeed in those environments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you, you look at all the different things related to health, um, related to welfare, related to communication, related to even doctors' bedside matters related to even things such as representation. So who are on posters, for instance? Who are we seeing as role models? Just naming schools after role models doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a positive role model because we recognize that in most cases, um, schools get named after people who are no longer with us in, in many cases. So 
yeah, those are big things. Now, I, I don't want to be this as a downer. We often speak yeah. in realities, but I think it's important for us to recognize because it seems like many of the social determinants are disconnected from one another. It's like, why can't the student learn? Well, they're hungry or, or they didn't sleep in a bed last night or they, you know, they had to get their three-year-old brother off to daycare or what have you. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you the other way. If we were to provide the resources and the equity in an education perspective from K through 12 and beyond, what would that do? If we stabilize education, what would that do realistically to the other social determinants that exist in our culture? I would like to think, and again, I'm, I'm positive when I'm thinking this way, I would like to think you would improve upon those social determinants. And folks, if I say that, here's the reason why I would say that. And we have to think about this in a global perspective as well, because we sometimes think about just the United States. So um, when we look at data and we look at studies, when we look at like what creates healthy situations or environments where people can what they can aspire to um, positive health outcomes. I think focusing on things such as this, first of all, you're going to increase literacy, okay? Um, and with literacy generally comes some type of self-respect that comes with it and increases self-esteem and self-efficacy, okay? These are things that we know. I think we have to recognize that education is also a tool for human rights. This is something that we do not talk about in this country. And it's just so funny to, to kind of um, funny and sad at the same time. We generally think of human rights abuses as somewhere else other than in the Norman, Northern Hemisphere. And it's, it's a travesty because if we did some of the same, if we saw some of the same abuses happening in other parts of the world, we would say that these are clear human rights abuses. Um, we recognize as well, when we think about trying to have education, you know, you want to have knowledge of your community. I think that's a very important thing because knowledge of a community means you know where the health supports are at. If you know where the health supports are at, then you're not afraid, you're not intimidated. Um, voting matters. When we, we think about it in terms of when we take literacy away from people and we, we um, take away opportunities for them to learn, people don't vote. People tend to hate more. People tend to dehumanize more. People tend to be manipulated by fear. I hope these are not morbid things because we're seeing a lot of these things unfortunately happening in communities right now where it's tied specifically to education or the refusal to be educated um, in some cases. Um, I also think as well, you know, you have to think about limited opportunities. And uh, I scribbled something here a few seconds ago when it's thinking about social mobility and social capital. We talk about things, people talk about generational wealth. Well, how does that happen? Well health is a matter of wealth in a lot of different communities. So even at the basic level, when you're just talking about having a job that has medical benefits, and I don't think people recognize how, how such of a big thing that is, dental benefits, right? These are big things. I mean, you can get your teeth cleaned. I think the average cost is like 250 bucks, depending on where you are in the United States. Yeah, dental benefits, you've got that taken care of twice a year, for instance. So, you know, the, again, the extremism, things such as gender, gender equity. I mean, these are the types of things that we want because they lead to health. And then they lead to the other determinants when we talk about what is considered a safe community unit and what do we think about in terms of mental health and how do people feel like they can succeed in society. Yeah. 
I'm going to add two, and I know you'll agree with me on these both. When we have this solid education space, we allow critical thinking to emerge, and that relates to the power of the individual and the collective power of that group, which we think is often, when we think of areas that are under-resourced, that they are oppressed and yeah. that they are segregated and that they are held down, not by accident. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I talk about is biopolitics. And again, um, people will have some different opinions about this, but this is something I've studied for years and much more accomplished people have discussed this from an economic standpoint. We have societies and countries and policies that are literally set up to let other people succeed at the expense of other people's poor health. And it's I mean, it's, it's like, again, things that we would talk about if we, we attributed them to other countries, we talk about abuse, but it's ridiculous. Like people make political decisions um, and make educational decisions because they know that some groups will probably not be here as a result of those different types of policies or decisions. So, yeah. You know, I, I've got to ask you as a, a colleague and a friend, what are we so afraid of? I, that's a great question. Um, I often ask myself under what, what would be the scenario that, that I would not be um, critical, right? And I don't know, I, do, I, I wish I had an answer for it. I, I could probably say, I think fear is one of those things that if you broadcast it enough, it's, it's like a, a thread of a, it just catches on. So we, we, we get into these silos sometimes, we get into these, these thinkings that we have to conform. And I would probably suggest to you as we're talking about education, that starts very early. Again, we start with parents, we start communities, whether it is um, churches, YMCA, schools, Boy Scouts. I mean, either thing you wanna put here, if you have the wrong leadership in place where you provide a culture of fear, it will continue to be passed through. I think the other piece of it is, is that, and I'm just gonna be just frank here, I think sometimes people may not necessarily know what fear actually is. And the reason why I say that is because we're moving from a world that used to be all about exploration. And now we're all about protecting borders. And when you protect borders and when you're xenophobic, you will never go outside, outside of those confines to see how it is differently. Or you do actually know, and you want to keep power. So I have this debate um, with friends of mine from time to time when we think about leaders and when we think about who we vote into office, for instance, and we recognize how much little global information they actually have and how that has changed significantly in the past 100 years. And that's not to say that we had political leaders 100 years ago who knew everything because they made some really terrible decisions when we think about hindsight. But you have to want to go learn about other people and you have to want to change policy for the better. And I think sometimes people have the fear of themselves dying. So it's like, it's better for their quality of life and their security to be tightly wound than to think about what it could mean to change things for people that they're never going to see in the future. 
Well, it comes back to what we talked about early, the idea of expanding our boundaries, taking more risks, getting out of our silos and our neighborhoods for that matter, and, and learning something about somebody who's different than you. Yeah, and listening, which is again, a skill that I, I always have to remind people of, the listening piece of it. Um, a few of my colleagues I went through my doctoral program with, um, three of them were women from, um, two were women from Korea and one women from Japan. And me being the person that I was at that particular time, and I've written about this before, I went in there thinking I knew everything. Like I always felt compelled to talk because I thought, okay, they're being quiet in class. Maybe it's cultural, they're just quiet and won't talk. And we got to a point where we really had a discussion about that. And my mentor is from Kenya, so we really had a great discussion about it, which is like, no, that has nothing to do with Brian. It's like, you just talking, you just won't be quiet. So, and that was a really reflective thing because I had to sit back and go, okay, I'm, I'm trying to control this classroom environment and, and for a lot of different reasons, right? That I didn't know at the time. Um, so yeah, sometimes it is about listening, which is very difficult for a lot of us to do. Listening is, is not a skill that we teach a lot. I just recorded a lecture this morning and I said, one of my leading edges is I asked the students, where do they need support? And one of my leading edges is giving up control. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think for many of us that are in the space of leadership and uh, community engagement and education, it's like we try to control the narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if we were to let it go a little bit more often, that we might be uh, surprised at how capable people really are. And, and I love what you said about the idea of providing the adequate resources that people need to be successful. Yeah, I think we, I'll give you this too. I just think sometimes we play to our stereotypes or whatever our stereotypes is. So somebody says, you're a professor. So you're supposed to talk a lot. And maybe that's not always the right thing to do, right? Because right. we, that's the thing that we are, that's the safe stereotype. That's the thing that we are acculturated to do. Our doctoral programs many times teach us to do that. We're taught to be experts and talk a lot. And maybe that's not always the right thing. And we need to probably change that paradigm. So I want to end, Brian, with uh, some of your practices, some of your practices around reflection and risk and all the things that you've been talking about. What are some of the things that you like to do that others can learn from? That's a good, really great question. I mean, you know, we always, I always try a couple of these things every year. So I think most recently, um, a lot of the reflection has sort of come through thinking about um, what I call um, compository. And some people are just like, well, what does that mean? So it's like a layering of different things, right? So it might be art, it might be music, it might be something that you see and, you know, seeing a picture and not just saying, well, that's a great picture, but what does that picture relate to? Like, how have you seen a version of that in another part of your life? And not only that, um, some of the things that we've talked about, I'll, I'll probably talk about this in the future with our SWIFT group, embodiment. But thinking about how people in that particular time, when they saw that picture, how they may have been feeling, what they may have been negotiating, what influenced them to either see it, write it, draw it, experience it. Perfect example. One of the things that I like going to in every city's museums, I love going to museums and it's not just to see, hey, here's a pretty picture, but I've trained myself to sort of think about, all right, I'm seeing this Van Gogh, which I did. 
by the way, in New York City. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, going, what? first of all, you, you go around in the Metropolitan Museum and it's like, why is this big crowd here, right? Because th that's just me, right? And it's like, oh, that's a Van Gogh. That's unbelievable. And, you know, people have their own different perceptions to it. But I think for me, you know, it wasn't just seeing it. It was thinking about, okay, there's some things that we could probably take from a health perspective here and think about not just how the picture was designed and drawn, but maybe some of the mental health aspects or what we would consider mental health aspects regularly. What was going on in that community? What was going on with Van Gogh? What was going on with his brother, right? Thinking about that and then taking that and probably reflecting and going outside, um, you know, which I did just walk around New York City for a while. And it's just like, wow, you know, I'm seeing some things and just watching people. So that's probably the biggest one, um, you know, and I'll, I'll probably talk a little bit or write a little bit more about that in the future, but just the layers, because we do have a lot of layers of discrimination. I'll give you one more for me real quick before we get out of here. Um, so I think a lot about sports and I think a lot about space and I think about, about land. And I think about the irony of athletes performing in a system where they're potentially under capitalist control um, at the same time that they're on land that's on indigenous land. Um, so Kansas City Chiefs, for instance, you, have a, you can have a Kansas City Chiefs playing football on indigenous land and having in racism in the end zones. And nobody thinks about the different layers of what that is. And not only that, in the community and what that is and what that means and, and whose stories are we missing there. So yeah, that's another practical example, I think, in terms of reflection. Well, it fits very well with what you were talking about, about the layers of culture, the layers of discourse, uh, the layers of, of what, we, what we constitute as safe and, and power in those spaces, and frankly, who's got that power. Um, and so um, it's really a very thoughtful uh, space that you're in, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Brian, anything else you want to share with us at this time? No, um, David, this is this is great. I appreciate again um, having this opportunity to break bread with you and share some info. And um, again, I want to highlight a lot of the work that you're doing. It's, it's unbelievable. And I'm, I'm happy to be working with you in SWIFT and happy to provide a, a, a few moments for the podcast. So that's all I have. Brian, it's been a joy. Thank you for joining us today. I am David Nelson. This is the Days of Learning SWIFT podcast, and we will see you next time.